Amen. If you are here today and you don't know Christ and there's bondage in your life or addictions or fears or anxieties or uncertainty, God didn't send religion. He sent his son. He sent his son to die for your sins and for mine, to take that which was hopeless and give us hope to save us when we didn't deserve to be saved, and to change our lives for all eternity. And in a few minutes, I'm going to give an invitation and give you an opportunity for you to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God loved you enough that he sent his son to die for you, and that through him, you could have life and have it more abundantly. We're going to talk this morning about there's power in his name, Acts chapter 3. During the bombing of France in World War II, as the Allied forces were moving through France toward Germany, a particular city was bombed, Strasbourg, France, and the cathedral there was basically destroyed. That cathedral contained a statue of Christ. As they uncovered the rubble, they discovered that the statue was perfectly intact except for the fact that the hands of Jesus were missing. A sculptor learned about that after the war, and he offered to build them a new statue of Jesus, just like the old one, to recreate it and to build them a new one. And the church said, no, we do not want a new statue. We want to keep this one because while Christ has a heart for men, we are to be reminded that he has no hands except our hands. We are the hands and the feet of Jesus in this world. It is up to us to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And so I want you to see this setting of this familiar story in the book of Acts chapter 3 and verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. And when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on them and said, look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. He's about to get more than he asked for. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. That verse right there tells you that he wasn't a Baptist. He was walking and leaping and praising God. You know, we can be quiet in 34 languages. This guy got excited because his life had been changed. 
Listen, when your life has been changed, there's going to be a different step that you have. There's going to be a different tone that you have. There's going to be a different expression that you have. When Christ has changed your life, it's going to change everything about you. It's going to take that which is broken and make it whole. Now you have to remember in the book of Acts, it, it says that as they move through, they begin to share the gospel of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. And so as we move from the gospels, the accounts of Jesus on earth, into Acts and into the epistles, the emphasis on miracles and signs de-emphasizes because the emphasis is on witnessing and spreading the gospel on the Great Commission. Now, Acts chapter 2, Luke said, everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. We don't know how many. We do know this one. As Luke is writing this book, he singles out this particular story, I think, because of the contrast in the story. Here's a lame man, lame from his mother's womb, and he cannot walk. He has to be carried everywhere he goes. He is dependent on other people. He is helpless. He is hopeless. And notice the detail of what Luke says as he writes this account in Acts. They sat him outside the gate beautiful. Here's a broken man outside of a beautiful gate. Here's a man who is lame outside of a gate that he could not go in because Leviticus 21 says that no one who was sick or lame could enter through that gate. So here's a man who is close to religion, he is close to where God is being worshipped, but he's outside. He can never get in. He is unwelcomed and unwanted. God help us if anyone in this community ever thinks they are unwelcomed or unwanted, that they cannot come in to the doors of this church and be welcomed and received and loved on and shown the love of Jesus Christ. But here's this guy, and he cannot get in. It's impossible. He is not wanted, and so he sits outside the gate while people are going to worship, and he begs for alms. This miracle will lead to a message of salvation. Now, Peter and John are going up as it was their custom at the ninth hour. It is the hour, 3 p.m., the same hour at which Christ had died. It was an hour when all Jews would gather and go to the temple to pray. Now, think about it. This man has been lame since his mother's womb, and religious people are passing him every day. People on their way to worship God, too busy to help a man who needs God. Does that resonate with you? You ever come to church or go to a men's Bible study or a ladies' Bible study and you see a need and you just put your spiritual blinders on and say, I'm sure somebody's going to take care of that, but I'm on my way to worship Jesus. Every one of us passed homes of people that are lame and hurting and broken and feel unwanted and unloved. 
So these religious people are going by. We don't know how long he had been there. We don't know if Jesus had passed him at some point. But Jesus didn't heal him. Why? Because there was an appointed time for a greater work. There was a moment that was coming. Peter and John were going to come after the resurrection, after the ascension, on their way to church, and he is at a divine moment in his life, and Peter and John say, look at us. It would be what Jesus would have done if he had stopped at that moment. He would have tried to make sure that that man had his attention and he had the man's attention. He wanted the focus on him. He wanted him to understand you cannot receive what you're not paying attention to. You can't receive what you don't expect. And so Peter and John admit two things. First of all, they didn't have any money. <laughs> that's, why every, that's why some deacons think preachers ought to stay poor. Uh, because you'd be like Peter and John, just don't ever have any money. Well, they didn't have any money because they didn't have any money. But they said another thing. They didn't go, you know, I just don't have anything. I don't, I don't know if you've ever done this. I, I've, been, I've been in New York, and, uh, you know, if you ever give a dollar to anybody on the street in New York, there's a system, and every 20 feet, somebody else is going to stop you and ask you for money because it just goes down the road. And there's just signals that they send, and they'll stop and get you. Well, maybe that was going on around Jerusalem, and so people just said, let's just ignore it. Some of them have real needs. Some of them are just faking it because they don't want to get up and get a job. And so they just ignored it. But they didn't just say, we don't have money. They said, what we have is authority in the name of Jesus. We have authority and power in the name of Jesus. And they didn't say, in the name of Peter, who some think is the head of the church, or the name of John, who wrote the gospel and three epistles and saw Jesus in the book of Revelation, they didn't hand out their resume and say, in our name, rise and walk. They said, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. It was the power and authority of Jesus. Listen, we don't have any power apart from the authority of Jesus. That is our source of power. That is what we have to offer. It's not the name of a church. It's not the name of a denomination. It's the name of Jesus. Ray Stedman said, true witnessing always follows a specific model. First, God works in a human life. Second, that person tells other people what God did. Third, God works in the lives of the hearers and the process repeats. What does it mean to be a witness for Jesus? It means to share something that you know or something that you've experienced, to make known a fact or a truth or an experience that you have had. And so when I'm called to be a witness, I'm not called to be a salesman. I'm not marketing the gospel. I'm not called to be a defense attorney. The name of Jesus defends itself. I'm not called to be a prosecutor. I'm called to be a witness. Now, there are people that are called, like Ravi Zacharias and others, that are called as apologists. They are defenders of the faith. Or Josh McDowell, who wrote the book Evidence That Demands a Verdict, which is a great book to give to people that are intellectually offended by the gospel because it gives all the evidence of the 
the truth of the gospel and the truth of the word. Well, most of us are just witnesses. You know, I'm not smart enough to be an apologist. And so I, I'm just a witness. I just can share what Christ did for me. That's what these guys did. Both are uneducated fishermen, but they bear witness to Jesus. They're willing and ready to share. And being a witness doesn't mean how many people can I talk to today. It means I'm willing and I'm able and I'm ready to share. Look at this verse from 1 Peter 3, 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Can I tell you what that verse does not say? It does not say if you're at a fellowship or if you're in a restaurant or, or if you're at the hospital or you're, you're at a funeral home and you're a believer and, and somebody says, man, I need to know about Jesus, you don't say, let me find one of our pastors and they can tell you how. It means you have been equipped as a member of the body of Christ to share your story about how Christ has changed your life. You know, I, I'm not paid to do your witnessing for you. I am accountable to do my witnessing for myself when given those opportunities. And so we are to be ready, always ready, Peter said. Not sometimes ready, not after we've taken 14 evangelism courses and, and got 12 tracks in our pocket and have got the three circles memorized and, and got a witnessing bracelet on and got steps to peace with God in the, in the dashboard of the car. Not after that, just be ready to make a defense. Have you ever even defended Jesus when somebody takes his name in vain to say, I would appreciate it if you would not do that? Because that's my Lord and Savior you're talking about. So who, who should we witness to? Let's just narrow this down. Depending on your theological perspective, I'm going to give you who you need to witness to. First of all, you need to witness to people in your circle of influence. That means friends, family, neighbors, work associates, relatives, people in your circle of influence, people that you know. You need to witness to people outside your comfort zone, people outside my comfort zone. You ever talk to anybody that you're not comfortable talking to? That's our responsibility. The disciples were uncomfortable in going to Samaria, and Jesus specifically talked to a Samaritan woman, which would have been seen as forbidden, specifically talked to her to make a point to his disciples. And then number three, any and all. Anyone and all people. Anywhere, any place, anytime, anyone. See, don't buy the lie that people aren't interested in spiritual things. Still, the polls say over the last 50 years that the majority of people will listen to you if you ask if you can share your testimony, your story, or if you invite them to church. Hey, we live in a very dark world. And we're called to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus. C.S. Lewis said, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men to Christ and to make them into little Christ. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself 
are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. Now look at this. There's an undeniable need. He's crippled from birth. He's carried to the temple gate to beg. He's asking for money. We pass these kind of people every day. They live in our community. They live on our streets. They live around the Coke plant. They live around the Hope Center at the Coke plant. They live in your neighborhood, across the street, behind the alley. They live around you. They're hopeless. They're helpless. They're lame and they're in bondage. They're broken by sin and by addictions and by anxieties and fears. And some of them are up and out and some of them are down and out. And so you may live in a gated area or you may live in a trailer park or you may rent week by week, but everybody around you needs to know the love of Jesus. They need to know that Christ died for their sins. Nothing's changed. We have 48 just Baptist churches in our association. And half of them could close down and it wouldn't make any difference and nobody would notice. Listen, here's the question to ask. If we went out of business tomorrow... Would anybody in our community know or care? Because the only reason we exist is for people that are not yet our members. The only reason we went to two services is to make room for people that can, so that they could come because we were too full in one. We didn't do it just to make it convenient for us. We did it to try to open more doors for people to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. We passed them on the way to church. We pass them every day. We see them in the line at the grocery store, at the drugstore. We see them at Walmart and Kmart, wherever else you go. Well, we can't go to Kmart anymore. It's closed. They're not there. But there are people all over this community that need to know that somebody cares about them. They need to know that there is a Lord who loves them and a church that loves them and wants them to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's this lame man who is a picture of the world, lying at the gate. The world doesn't know what it really needs. This man thought he needed money. What he really needed was a savior. And so here are Peter and John, in the midst of this explosive growth in the church, their day gets hijacked by a lame man. It was not in their day planner. It was not on their calendar. They hadn't set a reminder on their phones. All of a sudden, they see this man. Maybe they had passed him before, but now they see him like they've never seen him, and they say, look at us. God changed their schedule. Now, why is that? They were going to pray. I would submit to you that in a prayer environment and when we are prayed up and walking in the fullness of the Spirit, we see things that we would not otherwise see. God makes us sensitive to people and to moments we would otherwise not be sensitive to. And so this crowd begins to gather in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Instantly, the man's feet and ankles became strong. The word that Luke uses there is a medical term for something that is out of socket and comes together. And he walks and he leaps. And now we have an undeniable opportunity. Verse 11. Peter turns their focus from the man and the miracle to the message of Jesus. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. 
But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this, and why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is in the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. In other words, they all knew who this guy was. He had been there forever. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of all. So what is, what is Peter doing? He's following orders. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Remember the gospel? Paul talks about this in Romans. The gospel first for the Jews, then for the Gentiles. It's still largely confined to Israel and to Jerusalem. It's beginning to spread out. And so he's a witness. And what does he do? He pronounces religious people guilty of killing Jesus. Guilty. He says, you did this. You disowned your Messiah. You disowned your Savior. You asked for a murderer instead of the Prince of Peace. Now, Peter is preaching and speaking to the Jews, but we have to remember that sin is also on us. When I was growing up, people talked about Jewish people as the Christ killers. They were the ones that turned him over. The Romans nailed him to the cross, but we are the Christ killers. The only reason Jesus had to die, the only reason Jesus came to die was because of my sin and your sin and the sin of those who have yet to know him. You see, I did it. I did it. Little things, big things. Well, was it big sins or little sins? It's just sin. You see, when I was a kid growing up in my dad's drugstore, sometimes I would see something I really wanted for my road race set. So I had this road race set. It was up in the attic. I had the trees and the little buildings. I had all these little cars and everything. And some of you are going, man, you should have just bought a video game. We didn't have video games, all right? We just, we had to make our own stuff. And sometimes I would go down to this store on Market Street and I would see these cars and I think, man, those are so cool. And so I would reach into my dad's cash register who was paying me and take $10 out to go buy a car. So I stole from my dad. If that is the only thing I've ever done against God, I deserve hell. Because the commandments say, thou shalt not steal. If that's the only thing I'd ever done, and it's not the only thing. But if that was it, the only way to change that was not to go to my dad at some point later and say, you know, dad, I stole $10 from you uh, with interest. How much would I owe you to make it square? That wouldn't fix it. 
because my sin was against my dad, but it was also against my God. And so the only way, if all I ever did was steal $10, the only way I can get to heaven is to acknowledge that I am a thief in my heart and to confess it and realize that Jesus gave himself, gave up the wealth of heaven to come and die for my sin so that I could spend eternity in heaven. That's the message. All of us sin. All of us put Christ on the cross. It's our sin that put him there. It's your sin. It's the sin of your grandchildren that you think can't commit any sin. They were born into sin. And they're cute, and you put all the pictures you want on Facebook, everything else, but I'm going to tell you something. If Jesus doesn't save them, they'll die and go to hell. Why are we here? We're here to be witnesses of this truth that no one has to die and go to hell. That no one has to die without Christ. That we can give a message of hope to a lost world. Now, look at verse 17. And now, brethren, he's calling for a decision. He's about to give an invitation. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you. So what does he do? He tells them to repent and return. What does he say that they did? He says that they had missed the point that Jesus was the promised Messiah, that Jesus had fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament regarding a coming Messiah, that the scriptures would bear witness to what they were saying, that the prophets would bear witness to what they were saying, and what they needed to do was to repent and to return. They need to give their hearts to Jesus. They need to acknowledge their Messiah. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever acknowledged that you're a sinner? Have you ever acknowledged that you're a sinner? And not only acknowledged that you're a sinner, but have you ever acknowledged and confessed that you need a Savior? I'm not, I'm not talking about a head nod, and I'm not talking about walking an aisle, and I'm talking about being baptized or sprinkled or joining a church. I'm talking about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Have you ever done that? Have you ever asked Christ to forgive you of your sin? Have you ever acknowledged that you're a sinner in need of a Savior? Have you ever confessed that Jesus is the only way I'm going to get to heaven? Have you confessed him publicly? Or do you need to today confess him publicly? as Lord and Savior? Do you need to give your heart today to Jesus Christ? The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's not one of us in here that says this, not talking to me. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Now, if somebody offered you the greatest gift you could ever be offered, and that is eternal life with God, would you turn it down? Would you turn it down? But you see, it begins with repenting. And repenting simply means to change directions. I was, I no longer want to be. I want to change the direction of my life. And I know only God can save me. Listen, this is not about trying harder. This is about abandoning yourself that the only hope you've got to get to heaven is through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the only hope you've got. And so I'm going to ask you to stand with heads bowed and eyes closed. And our men are going to be here at the end of the aisle. And if you need to trust Christ today as your Lord and Savior, I'm going to ask you to step out from wherever you are, in the back, in the middle, wherever you might be, and come down and make a public confession of faith in Jesus Christ. I know it's a big room and it may scare you to be in a crowd this size, but God calls you to confess him publicly. And so in a moment, Mark's going to sing. And as he's singing, I want you to step out and to come. Now, some of you may need to just come to this altar and pray about the people that you pass every day that you've never given a gospel witness to. The people that work at the bank or at the drugstore, at the grocery store, or wherever you shop and whatever you do. Those people that you meet at the restaurant, that, that you give a confession of your faith in Christ to them. Not pushy, but just telling the best news you've ever heard. Maybe you need to come and just pray by name for some of those people here at the altar. But as Mark sings, I'm going to ask you to step out. If you're hurting, if you're broken, you step out and you come right now and let Christ put your life together today.